And let's ask God to help us with his word. Uh, Living God, uh, we thank you uh, that you have sent your son into the world so that we could know you and we could know the life you give. Please help us to hear this gospel word as your word sent into the world uh, to bring light to those in darkness, uh, life to those living under the shadow of death. Help me to speak it truthfully and clearly. Help us all to understand it and change our thinking and lives to conform to it. And we pray, uh, give us joy in knowing Jesus, your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, did you go wow when the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel were read? Not oh and not oh no, you know, a list of names that mean nothing to me, but wow. Matthew's first audience, first century Jewish people would have gone wow. Matthew has written these first few verses of his gospel to tell his readers that his book will be a real page-turner, that this is the story they've been waiting for, the story of the Lord their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, their forefathers, and the story of the man the Lord has chosen and sent into the world to rescue them, to bring to fulfilment all that he had promised them, to bring what they'd longed for as they languished under the oppressive rule of the Roman conquerors. Matthew has introduced his book to let them know his gospel is a must-read. You didn't pick that up? Well, let me help you hear it through first century ears. And doing that, maybe you'll get some of the excitement, get the wow. And know that the gospel is a must-read for you as well. Let's start with the first sentence. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Each phrase makes great claims for Jesus Now, Matthew's gospel was written in Greek and Greek-speaking Jewish readers. Readers of the Old Testament in Greek would know that he's actually modelled his first line on Genesis, on Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1. Matthew's opening phrase, the book of the genealogy, is the phrase used in both those places to introduce important new beginnings in the story of humanity. Genesis 2.1 says in English, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Genesis 5.1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In both cases, generations is actually probably better understood as history or the family history, say, of Adam. In all its uses, what follows is not the ancestors of the person named, or in Genesis 2, the origins of the heaven and earth, that's just been given. Now, what follows is what the person named and their descendants did. Or in Genesis 2, what happened next in the creation story, the creation of the man and the woman and the fall. So verse 1 is not introducing the genealogy. 
the genealogy is there to support, as we will see, the claims of Jesus to be son of David, son of Abraham. Verse 1 is actually introducing the whole book of Matthew, telling us that what follows is what Jesus will do personally and through his followers. It's the book, in a sense, of the history of Jesus Christ. And the point of hearing the echo of the Greek Old Testament is that Matthew is saying that this is an episode of history at least as important as the creation of humanity and Jesus is a person as important as Adam. Matthew is saying that because Jesus is who he is, what you're actually going to hear is a new creative episode in the history of the world, that there's a new creation breaking in with the coming of this one. Now, that is a a big idea and a big claim. But who is Jesus that this should be the case? Well, Matthew, with a couple of phrases, locates Jesus squarely in the history of God's dealings with his people Israel, and at the same time, he is saying that Jesus is the Israelite who has significance for all people and all time, significance for us. First, he says he's the Christ. Now, Christ is a title that comes from an act. In Israel's history, when someone was made king like Saul or David, he was anointed. And again, the Greek verb for anoint is cryo. So you could think of being anointed as being Christed. Christ means the one who has been anointed. And as it was primarily kings who were anointed, the term came to mean the king, the one who... God had chosen to be king over his people, to exercise his rule amongst his people. And you heard it used that way in Psalm 2 that Andy read, the kings of the nation take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ. The anointed of whom God then says in verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. By saying Jesus is the Christ, Matthew is saying from the beginning, this is a book about a king, God's chosen king, and not just any king, but the promised king of God's people. Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. Now, in Jewish history, uh, David had been the greatest king, the one who'd really established the kingdom of Israel. And God had made very special promises to David, recorded in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, God had said in verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom, that is David's descendant forever. Verse 16, he says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised David that he would always have one of his offspring to sit on his throne and that his would be an eternal, a forever rule that David's throne will be established forever. Now, those promises to David had been built on, elaborated on by the prophets of Israel over the centuries. That actually started very early. So, in a sense, David's reflecting on that in Psalm 2. There God had said, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. The Christ 
would rule over the nations, the ends of the earth. All the earth would be his possession and there would be an end of rebellion against God when his reign comes. But here's another elaboration from the prophet Isaiah. We've heard this read at Christmas. A son was to be born. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord promised that the Christ, David's descendants, would have an eternal rule of peace characterised by justice and righteousness and he committed himself to bring it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, in Isaiah 11, speaking of one descended from David, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. This descendant would be a just and righteous king. And what a time he would bring. Real peace, no fear, justice, harmony with the created world and with each other. Famous passage, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. And it says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The rule of the promised Christ involved all time, eternity, all people, all the nations, and it will involve Isaiah 11, the transformation of the whole creation, a a rule of justice and righteousness for the poor and oppressed, a time, as you hear those words, a time you instinctively long for. And Matthew's saying to his readers, this is who I'm saying Jesus is is. Are you going to read on to find out if Jesus is this one? Or maybe Matthew's audience had already heard a little about Jesus, including his shameful death. And so Matthew's asking them, are you going to read on and find out why one you know to have been crucified could be this one? But Matthew doesn't just say that Jesus is the son of David. He says he's the son of Abraham as well. He's claiming that Jesus is the heir of the promises God made to Abraham. You heard them read, including, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that promise is repeated in various forms throughout Abraham's life and to his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. It is a sure promise. And it's a promise that In Abraham, in his descendants, all the families, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. That is, that the curses and judgments of Genesis 3, because the story in the Bible moves quickly from Genesis 3 and an increasing amount of sin to Genesis 12 and the first word of blessing. 
the curses and judgments of Genesis 3 being driven from the presence of God, the disordering of relationships, death, are promised to be reversed in Abraham's offspring. Jesus, being that heir, will bring blessing to all. But Matthew is making more than a claim that Jesus is the physical descendant of Abraham. Speaking to the Pharisees later in the Gospel, uh, John the Baptist uh, will say, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, a true child of Abraham is one who shares the character of Abraham as someone who believes God's word, shared the faith of Abraham. And that's actually what we'll see in the gospel. Jesus is someone who trusts God. We'll see that in the temptation in the wilderness and in the garden before Jesus' death. Jesus and Jesus alone is revealed as the true son of Abraham who alone can include any and all in the fulfilment of the promise to Abraham. So the first sentence, if you understand it, gets you in with the extraordinary greatness of its claim for Jesus. Jesus is the king who will rule over all, rule forever with justice and righteousness, different from all human kings and rulers. And Jesus is the one who, through trusting God like Abraham, will bring blessing to the peoples. So you read that first sentence and you think, could it be possible? And if you've heard a little about Jesus and his death, hopefully you think, how? How could that be possible? Well, Matthew's saying to you, read on. And then he starts to prove his claim, to demonstrate the truth of his claim in the genealogy that follows from verse 2. All those father of verses which we find so intimidating or interest squashing. Now, you know, you think, Matthew, why don't you just get on with the story? Well, in brief, the genealogy is important for the validation of Matthew's claim in his opening line. You see, for Jesus to be the son of Abraham... He must, or son of David, he must be a son of David first. To be the son, you must be a son. Oh, and perhaps some of his readers had heard that there were some questions about Jesus' parentage. And Matthew wants to start them thinking about that before he gives the details of Jesus' birth. But genealogies weren't the turn-off for first-century people. They are for 21st-century uh, Westerners. You see, genealogies mattered to first-hearers. Some roles and privileges you inherited. Jewish priests, for example, could trace their ancestry in, in Jesus' day back before the fall of Jerusalem over 500 years. And that ancestry established their right to serve in the temple. And it wasn't just priests that kept records. Uh, the church historian Eusebius tells us that at the end of the first century, the emperor Domitian used genealogical records to track down other descendants of David. They kept the records. And it wasn't just Jews who were interested in their ancestral line. The Roman nobility looked down on marrying anyone 
who could not trace their Roman lineage for more than five generations. In fact, genealogies matter in many cultures and families today. On Google, you can look up the family tree of the main line of the descendants of Confucius, and it extends to 80 generations. And so genealogies are not just about working about... This is the way Australians use genealogies usually, you know, is to work out whether you had an eccentric aunt or a convict forebear, right? That's about the extent of the interest. Now, genealogies can establish a vital connection to a group and to a right to a position, privilege or inheritance. In this case, Jesus' right to be the heir of the promises to Abraham and David. And Matthew, as you you may have heard, has taken a lot of care over this genealogy. It is highly structured and deliberately different from the genealogy of Jesus Luke records in Luke 3. A structure and a difference that actually focus on two things, Jesus' royal claims and the tragedy of the exile in Babylon and its aftermath. See, Matthew's genealogy contains a different list of names, from David on to the names found in Luke. Luke's got a much longer list, 42 generations, compared to 27 in Matthew. Though different, both would be reckoned as legitimate genealogies in the first century for abbreviation, citing somebody as the son of someone when they may have been their grandson or great-grandson was actually acceptable. And they'd be accepted because they would be seen to have different purposes. Matthew is giving a royal genealogy, a list of throne succession of those descendants of David who succeeded to his throne or were in line for the throne. And so all the names from David to the exile are of kings who reigned in Jerusalem. This emphasis on royal succession is also emphasised by the structure of Matthew's genealogy. Uh, You heard it read. All the generations, Abraham to David, 14, David to the deportation, 14, deportation to the Christ, 14. That structure of 14 generations is very deliberate. To make 14 generations from David to Jeconiah, the names of three kings, Ahaziah, Joash and Amaziah, have actually been left out and the Jewish readers would have known that. And Matthew claims 14 generations between Jeconiah and Jesus only by counting Jeconiah twice. And all that tells you that the number 14 highlighted in verse 17 really mattered to Matthew. You see, structuring the genealogy around 14 does two things. Firstly, it's a recollection of David, a highlighting of David, whose name is both the most frequent in these verses and whose name actually has the number 14 in Hebrew. Hebrew was a language where the letters of the alphabet stand for numbers. Uh, That's the way they they do that. And David's name has the number 14. Secondly, three sets of 14 is six sets of seven. And many views, many Jews following Genesis 1 structured world history in sets of sevens. Jesus becomes the beginning of the seventh seven, which, like the seventh day of creation, is both the climax and the fulfilment of the previous six and is left open-ended, a beginning without 
ending. So this is a royal genealogy. We're not left in any doubt about that. A royal genealogy building to a climax in a king whose reign has no end. But it's also a royal genealogy that has suffered dispossession, the deportation to Babylon, justly because of the sin of the people and the kings that came before. See, none of those names from the deportation onwards ruled on David's throne. And so it's a reminder at the beginning of the gospel that things are not right, that this is a king whose authority and right to rule is not recognised by the world, is subject to the hostility of human power. A king who cannot come to reign unless judgment is dealt with and the nation's hostility overcome. (laughs) Rather than bore Matthew's first readers, this genealogy would excite them and heighten their expectations. Oh, and yes, there's a note at the end of it that would have puzzled until they read on. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. In every generation, someone had been said to be the father of someone else, but not Joseph. He's said to be the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now, that verse, verse 16, firstly affirms legal status, that Jesus is legitimately the heir of David and of Abraham because he's accepted by Joseph. But it also indicates that there's something irregular about Jesus' birth, something irregular that, as we'll see, leaves room for Jesus to be more than Joseph's son for the reality of his being the son of God. But we're a bit kind of caught up on biological sonship. It might be cultural, you know, from the English aristocracy who, you know, believe in the importance of bloodlines, right? Or from our own preoccupation with genetics. We we tend to think that someone's only a true son if they share the biology. But for the ancient world, it was not genetics, but legal entitlement that mattered when it came to inheritance and belonging. Two illustrations. Firstly, in Leveret marriage from the Old Testament. The son of the union of the living brother with the deceased wife's with the deceased brother's wife, while not the inheritor of the deceased brother's genes, would inherit the property of the deceased brother because he was legally entitled to it. Another illustration, adoption could qualify for royalty. Do you know that the emperor Tiberius, who was reigning in Jesus' ministry, at the time of Jesus' ministry, he was the adopted son of the Emperor Augustus and being adopted fully entitled to reign. Now, by Joseph's acceptance of God's command to take Mary as his wife later in chapter 1 and by Joseph's recognition of Jesus as his son by his naming of Jesus, Jesus is legally Joseph's son and so the legal son of David, not a pretend son, but the real son. In fact, Jesus' adoption by Joseph is in accord with the other message of this genealogy, that hope is actually not in genes, but in God, which will become clear as we 
think about this introduction telling us that this gospel is not just the story of the man the Lord has chosen, but of the Lord himself. The introduction in verse 1 and this genealogy focus most used readers on God. You see, it's the Lord who took the initiative to make those promises to Abraham and to David that are so special, and it's those promises that make them people who matter, matter to us all. And in the Bible story, those promises are actually the Lord's response to sin, to the rebellion of Adam against God, to Adam plunging all his descendants into death and distance from God by choosing to disbelieve and disobey the Lord's command. It's in the promise to Abraham that blessing will come in the place of curse and in the promises to David that the rejected rule of the Lord will be restored and with its restoration bring peace and life. So the Lord's purposes for his whole creation, the Lord's reputation before the whole creation, hang on the fulfilment of those promises. He's got a lot invested here. But what we see in the genealogy is that if if their fulfilment was left up to the Lord's people, they would never be fulfilled. Human sin constantly threatens that fulfilment. Look again at the genealogy. Cast your eye over it. It's actually a record of failure of individuals and of the people of the whole, as a whole. Many of the kings in that second section were worse than duds. Rehoboam lost the kingdom through pride. Solomon was unfaithful with many wives. Ahaz put his trust in Assyria and not the Lord, and Manasseh even sacrificed his children to idols. Even the heroes in the genealogy are deeply flawed. Judah sold his brother Joseph into slavery. David, we are reminded, committed adultery with Uriah's wife. Oh, Jacob was a deceiver. Even Abraham told lies about Sarah to protect his own life. You see, this is not a list of righteous people who deserve a kingdom, who have done anything that would merit the Lord's great kindness to them. It's a list of sinners. And the genealogy is punctuated by the exile, a sign of the people's failure. You see, while a tragedy, it was, as we've just seen in Ezekiel, a deserved judgment. And the people hadn't really changed. And of themselves, the people in this genealogy are not able to recover their kingdom. This is a list of failures. Failures in righteousness and faithfulness. And from Jehoiachin on, it's actually a list of the obscure. The first couple are known and seem to have failed in whatever promise they had, but the rest are complete unknowns, not famous high achievers. And the point? Well, there's no hope in the human recipients, the human bearers of the promise for the fulfilment of the promise. They've done nothing deserving of God doing good to them. In fact, they constantly threaten the fulfilment of the promises by provoking the Lord's just judgment, by turning away from the Lord, making them deserving of the exact opposite of what's promised. Yet at at the same time, this genealogy is a list of surprising continuity over 1,800 years and more. Abraham and David do not run out of descendants. The exile is not the end. 
And that's because of the Lord's faithfulness, his gracious faithfulness. So the genealogy is a record of God's grace and God's faithfulness of his steadfast love to Abraham and his descendants. The promises are initiated by grace and they continue to guide God's dealings with the people by his grace and mercy, not their deserving. And that grace is actually emphasised by the four women mentioned in this genealogy. You heard their names. You see, the genealogy could have perhaps included the great mothers of the faith, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, but it doesn't. It mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. That really stands out. Because, you see, each is a surprise. Three are known to be Gentiles, non-Jews. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth and Moabites are a member of the people God said could never enter the congregation of the Lord. Oh, the fourth, Bathsheba is identified by her relationship to Uriah, a Hittite, a non-Jew. That's a surprise. And each represents a gracious intervention of God through what could be called a kind of suspicious and irregular conception and birth. Tamar posed as a prostitute to have children through her father-in-law Judah. Rahab was named as a prostitute. Bathsheba caught up in David's adultery. In Judah and David's case, that intervention was in the context of their sin, sin which threatened the continuity of the line of kings. Judah neglected the duty he owed his daughter-in-law Tamar to give her a husband and offspring. David committed murder and adultery that deserved death. You see, the genealogy says the hope of Israel is not in genes, not in racial purity, not in the righteousness of the recipients of the promises, but in God and God alone. His faithfulness and steadfast love and might that can work good from human ill depends on his mercy. You see, the Lord didn't abandon his promise to Abraham, to David, in the face of sin. What is actually seen in the genealogy is that he can use even sin, like Judah and Tamar and David and Bathsheba, to keep his promises and use surprising and irregular births to bring his promised purpose to fulfilment. More actually, the genealogy says that when it looks like nothing is happening, that third section, when the human heirs of the promise are doing nothing to bring about its fulfilment, God's never lost his focus. Take that last group of names, those after the exile. You know, during that, war, during that time, hundreds of years, there were wars, changing rules of Palestine, famines, earthquakes, threats to Israel's existence, fluctuating faithfulness among the people, but no great intervention of God. From Malachi on, no great prophet, no son of David rising to prominence, just David's line sinking further and further and further into obscurity until we come to Joseph, who is a carpenter. And then it says Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. God never lost sight of the promises, never wavered in his commitment to what he had said, 
even when it might have looked like that nothing was happening, that he had forgotten. Oh, no. He had a plan. He had a timetable, the time of his choosing. And now his plan had come to its climax. See, the Lord was not forgetful. He was determined to fulfil his promise through the person and at the time of his choosing. And it is the Lord's action that is Israel's only hope. We have this story because the Lord is the Lord, the God he's revealed himself to be, righteous and faithful, almighty and holy, the God of steadfast love and mercy, the God who is determined to fulfil his promise when all the recipients of the promise fail. Oh, and we see some other things. This promise is included really from the beginning. It's fulfilment Gentiles, non-Jews. For the Lord is the God of the whole earth. And yes, this promise will be fulfilled by the Lord in surprising ways because he's not frustrated in achieving his purposes by the sins of his people. Now, if you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you've just heard of Jesus or heard claims made for him but are as yet unconvinced, Matthew has written this introduction to tell you that this story is for you. It concerns you for the promises of God to David and Abraham concern you. And they are made by the God who is the God of all. So read on. Read on for what you can see. Read on to see whether Matthew vindicates these claims in the story he tells. And as you'll read on, you'll actually find in the rest of the story what you've found in these verses. Jesus will be the son of David. He'll rule for the poor. He'll be the king who won't despise the needy but serve them. Oh, he will bring a reign for the poor, the poor in spirit. And he will be the son of Abraham who, like Abraham, will trust God and bring the blessing of God for all. For this is a story that includes non-Jews from beginning to end, from the wise men coming to the birth of Jesus in chapter 2 to the end of the gospel when Jesus sends his disciples to all nations. But more, this will be a story of God fulfilling his promise by a surprising birth or keeping his word where his people, all people, fail of showing mercy to a sinful people who deserve death, a story of the almighty God working good from human sin, the sin of crucifying his son, a story of the beginning of the new creation and new humanity because God has dealt with deserved judgment in the death of his son and brought new life in his resurrection from the dead. As the genealogy shows, this story may come from another culture and time but it's a story for all cultures and all times, a story for you. For it holds the promise of forgiveness and life, a blessing where we live under the curse, of peace where we have drifted far from God and fear his anger at our sin. It holds promise for you. And if you're a believer, convinced already that Jesus is the Christ, the beginning of Matthew's gospel is saying to you, 
Don't lose sight of Jesus' greatness. Summed up by that opening line, Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the one, the only one in whom all humanity can find blessing, the reversal of the curse under which all live. And he is the ruler of the nations. So let Jesus be the great one in your life that he is. Resist the pressure to privatise your faith, to isolate Jesus to thus that religious part of their life, as if there are parts of creation that Jesus does not rule, sections of humanity whom Jesus cannot bless. He is the ruler of the whole creation. He is the hope of the nations. He is the hope of our nation. The only hope, don't lose sight of Jesus' greatness and put your hope in God revealed in Jesus, the Lord acting to save his people in faithfulness of his promises, faithfulness to his promises. Put your hope in the Lord, not in yourself and in your own goodness for the fulfilment of the Lord's promises to you, but in the Lord's demonstrated, proven grace and faithfulness. I mean, that genealogy spans about 2,000 years and yet not one word of God's promises failed, nor were they ever forgotten. That's right. So when nothing seems to be happening, when history just seems to be rolling on as usual, people busy with their own plans, ignoring God, preoccupied with their own concerns, remember that the Lord doesn't fail of his purpose. He hasn't forgotten his promise. He never ceases to be faithful. Ah, yes, he's moving in his own time to his appointed goal. The revealing of the new creation in the reign of his son, the Lord Jesus, and the exaltation, the glorification of Jesus as Christ and Lord of all. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we do thank you that it reveals you, the true and living God, and reveals your Son, the Christ, the bringer of blessing to the world. And we thank you that it calls us to trust you and to know in trusting you confidence and peace with you, whatever our circumstances and our times. We thank you for this book of the history of Jesus the Christ. And we pray that uh, we would know the fullness of the salvation it records. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.